Well, thank you, Alex. We appreciate you leading our praise time this morning, and you've done a great job taking us before the throne of grace, and we are grateful for that. I am so glad to see you, Gateway family, this morning. It is the beginning of spring break. It is Time Change Sunday, and it's raining, and you are all here, and I am very, very thankful and excited that you're all here with all three of those factors combining together this morning. I hope you're all having a great morning in the Lord so far. We'll find John chapter 18 in your copy of God's Word or in your Bible app. We're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of John this morning. We are in the home stretch, friends. We finished the Gospel of John, Lord willing, on April 22nd. So we have about seven weeks left in this journey through the Gospel of John. As we're heading through the home stretch, now we're continuing right now in the passion story, the story of what happens to Christ, what we typically celebrate around Easter. And in these several weeks leading up to Easter, how fitting it is that we are looking at this particular text. If you haven't looked at it yet, in the bulletin this morning is a list of all the Easter activities that Drew mentioned earlier, from Good Friday service to our Easter sunrise service to morning worship service to the community-wide Easter gathering on that Sunday night. All that's in the bulletin, the gatepost. I hope you'll take a look at that, put that on your calendar, and plan to join us. It's always such a special time. As we're thinking about John 18 this morning, I want to begin by asking you to think about movies and TV shows you like. Now, what in the world does that have to do with the Gospel of John? Well, a good bit today. So think about the movies and shows you like. Unless you're thinking about something from the 1950s or 60s, or like an old Mr. Rogers, where there was like one camera shot that stayed on the person the whole time, and the show ended 30 minutes later, that's not how movies and shows work anymore. Now it's a mixture of scenes that jump back and forth pretty quickly. If you think about your favorite movie, they'll probably show you a scene where something's happening to one of the main characters. And in the middle of the action, all of a sudden it cuts, and you're now in a different scene in a different place, and you're now watching what's happening to those other people at that setting. Then it jumps back to the previous scene, then it jumps back to that scene, and it goes back and forth. Why do they do that? Because by the end of the movie, you see how really all those different scenes have woven together to form one story. You see how intertwined everything is and how it really has come together to bring about one main story, one main theme for all of, all of that. Now, friends, long before movies did that, the Apostle John did that for us as well today. He's going to take two storylines and weave them back and forth, back and forth in our story this morning to show us that these things are intertwined, how what's happening to one person affects someone else, how happens this person affects the other person. And by the end, we'll see how it's all kind of wed together here. The two storylines that John is going to join together this morning is the preliminary trial of Jesus and then the denial of Peter, one of Christ's disciples, one of those who was closest to Christ. And he will go between the, the pre-trial hearing of Jesus, Peter's denial, back to the trial of Jesus, back to Peter's denial, back to the trial of Jesus, back to Peter's denial. He's going to go back and forth much like your favorite movie would because all of these things are very interconnected. What's happening to Peter affects Jesus. What Jesus is doing affects Peter as well. And we see this morning as Jesus is suffering and Jesus is about to die to rescue people like Peter who are sinning against him. And you're going to see this beautiful contrast this morning as these two storylines go back and forth between the steadfastness of Christ in the face of unjust suffering and the wavering and failures of Peter at the very same moment. So with that in view, there's one thing I want you to see this morning and that's simply this. Jesus suffered injustice to rescue us when we, like Peter, deny God through our sin. That Jesus suffered injustice to rescue us when we, just like Peter, deny God through our sin. We're going to see this morning injustice at every turn. We're going to see how very wrong Jesus' pre-trial hearing was. At the same time, as the story goes back and forth, we're going to see Peter denying Jesus. Not just one time, but three times. We're going to see Peter deny Jesus, and deny Jesus again, and deny Jesus again. But we're going to also see Jesus suffering this injustice 
because he loves Peter and he loves us. He's doing so to rescue us from our sin. Now, friends, I want to give us a caution. This is not just a story that happened in the past that we think, oh, wow, so sad Peter did that. I'm so glad Jesus forgave him. End the story. Let's move on with our lives. This is a story that's very real to you and to me as well because the reality is we are a lot more like Peter than I think we're prone to admit. And we're a lot more like Peter than we want to even acknowledge or realize. Jesus suffered injustice, not just to rescue Peter, but to rescue you and I as well because we, like Peter, deny God every time that we sin. So as we look at John chapter 18 this morning, I want you to be looking for two things in this text as I read it for us. First of all, What's the injustice? How is what's happening to Jesus so unjust? But second of all, I'll be looking for what is the glimpse in this text of how Jesus is going to rescue Peter and rescue us? It's not quite as obvious at first glance, but it's there. So how is what's happening to Jesus unjust? And then how is this a glimpse of he's going to rescue Peter and rescue us? So as we come to John chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 12. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. John chapter 18, we're going to read verse 12 through verse 27 this morning, starting with verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, He entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong... Bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you as we come to this text that your Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes and illuminates the text. God, I pray you do that for us this day. God, this text that for many of us is very familiar. God, would you give us fresh eyes of faith today to see this text, to see the wonder of this text, to see, Lord Jesus, what you were willing to endure to rescue us, but also to see how prone we are to sin and to forsake you. God, would you use this to... Do what only you can do of making application the truth of this text to each of our lives as only you can do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So again, what I want us to see from this text is that Jesus suffers injustice to rescue us when we, like Peter, deny God through our sins. So let's start with the idea of Jesus' suffering injustice here. Now, what's going on in the context of the setting? This is Jesus' 
pre-trial, if you will. This is not the official trial yet of Jesus. So you know the flow of where we are. Last week we saw the arrest of Jesus. Now we have Jesus before Annas. And this is like a pre-trial, like a preliminary hearing. What follows this is him going to Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin for the official Jewish trial. From there he goes to the Roman government for a Roman trial. Then he heads off to the crucifixion. So we're at the early stages of this process, following the arrest, but before the official Jewish trial. Today we're coming in John 18 to the pre-trial hearing. And even in this pre-trial hearing, the injustices done to Jesus are very great. Look back at verses 12 and 13 of what's happening here. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Like we saw last week, this large group of soldiers arrest Jesus. And it's interesting, the group was large enough that warranted the captain to be there to oversee what was being done in the arrest of Jesus. Now, let me remind us, this arrest of Jesus was very illegal. In the Jewish culture, you were not allowed to make an arrest at night. You were not allowed to make an arrest based on someone who had betrayed someone else. And you were not allowed to make an arrest without any type of, I guess, any type of evidence that had been proven. They, they've missed it in all three of those. They've arrested Jesus at night using a traitor and without any basis. So the arrest itself was unjust, was illegal in how they handled it. But it did not stop there. What they do by taking Jesus to Annas is also illegal and unjust here. Now, why they take him to Annas? It's very clear that Annas was not the high priest at the time. Why did they not go straight to the high priest? Why did they stop with this guy named Annas? Well, this guy was married. Sorry, this, sorry, this guy's daughter was married to the high priest. So why him? Well, just some historical background for us to make sense of this. Annas at one time was the high priest. He had previously been the Jewish high priest. In fact, he'd been put in place by a guy named Quirinius. That name sounds familiar. Go back to the Christmas story in Luke. And in Luke, we're told that there was a census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So he was the high priest at that time that Jesus was born. He served in that role till about 15 AD. Now, in Jewish law, in Jewish culture, the high priest was a position for life. You think in a small way, like our Supreme Court justices serve for life. In a much bigger way, these Jewish high priests were to serve for life. Why is he not high priest anymore? Well, that's what Jewish law required, but the Romans didn't care about Jewish law. And so in around AD 15, the Roman government deposed. They removed Annas from being the high priest and put other people in that role. And so though he was not technically high priest because of what the Romans did, many of the Jews still viewed him as the legitimate high priest. So it was very natural for them to take them to Annas, the guy who they thought should be the legitimate high priest. But it's also natural for Jesus to go here because he was a man of great influence. Once he got deposed and removed as being high priest, several of his sons served as high priest, and now his son-in-law. So he has such influence that even when the Romans start trying to put other people in place, they're all members of his family. He was a man of incredible influence over the Jewish culture. And so they take Jesus to this man, this former high priest, to begin. Now, why particularly do they take him to Annas? What are they trying to do? And the answer for us is in verse 19. So jump down there. The high priest, and here this is referencing, by the way, Annas, but they're calling him the high priest. It's kind of like a title for life. So they're still referencing what Annas is doing. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So what is Annas doing here? Well, in Jewish law, friends, you could not be accused, you could not go to trial without having an accusation that had been verified, basically, to bring you to the trial. Everything is happening so unjustly here, they bring him to Annas to basically try to get the evidence they need to be able to arrest Jesus. So Annas starts questioning Jesus, his disciples, what's he been teaching, who's following him. He's basically unjustly fishing here. 
Again, Jewish law did not allow someone to testify against themselves. In Jewish culture, you were not allowed to bear a witness and say, tell us what really happened here. You couldn't do that. But he's doing that here to try to gain the evidence they need so they could then pass Jesus' own to the official trial and hopefully then crucify him. But because of what's going on here, Jesus is suffering great injustice. And that's what Jesus points out to Annas. If you look at verses 20 and 21, what's Jesus saying? He's not giving some smart aleck remark here. He's just being very graciously firm that what Annas is doing is illegal, and he calls his hand on it. Look back at verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus is just firmly but graciously pointing out that, hey, you have no evidence, no witnesses here. Why don't we do it the way it's supposed to be done? So he's saying, provide evidence if there is any. But when he does that, Annas and those around aren't like, wow, he's right. We're not doing this right. We'll, we'll repent and make this thing right. They only escalate the injustice. Look at what happens once Jesus points out the injustice is happening to himself here. Verses 22 and 23. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So when Jesus points out the illegality of what's happening, no one repents, no one relents. Rather, this guy literally, when it says strikes, in the Greek it means to strike in the face with a hand. He literally looks at Jesus and slaps him across the face for, what, for even questioning the legality of what's happening here. That was not allowed in Jewish courts. It was unjust and it was illegal, but no one at the time really seemed to care about that. Through all this process, Jesus is facing injustice. But why? Why is Jesus enduring this? He's God. He could look at the soldiers, slap him in the face, and call down fire from heaven. The guy just get obliterated right there for striking him. He could do what he did in the garden with all these people around him. And Annas says, tell me about your disciples and followers. He could just say, I am, and everyone fall on the ground like already happened in the garden. He is God. He could do this. He did not have to endure injustice and the illegalities of these trials. Why did Jesus endure this? He did it because, as it says throughout John, the hour had come. This was the time that God had ordained for Jesus to die. And this is the, the methodology, the process that God had ordained to bring about his crucifixion. So Jesus is gladly submitting to the Father's will to do what had been decided before time began on this. And so he's willing to suffer injustice. But he's suffering injustice because he's going to rescue sinners. Where do we see that in this text? Where's the idea that Jesus is suffering these things to rescue sinners? Well, look at verse 14. In verse 14, John tells us, It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for his people. Well, this sounds familiar. It should, because back in John 11, we've already been told this. Did John have a senior moment in his old age and forget that he had written that and write it again? Like, oops, I already told him that. Sorry, I'm repeating myself. No, there's a reason he's bringing that back out and repeating for us what was said in John 11. Caiaphas, the high priest, has said here in verse number 14 for us that it would be expedient, advantageous for one man to die for the people. What was the high priest saying? The high priest is saying, yes, I know what we're doing is illegal. I know this is not the way the law should happen. But it's better for us to break our laws, to kill this one innocent man, than for our way of life to be challenged. It's better to kill this innocent man than for some uprising to happen, a new religious movement start, and Rome get involved and change our way of life. He's saying it's expedient, it's good for us to break our laws, to kill an innocent person, because maybe it'll settle everything down and end this whole nonsense. That's what Caiaphas is wanting with that. But what Caiaphas doesn't realize is he's uttering what I call an unconscious prophecy. He's telling what's going to happen, 
but he doesn't understand what he's saying. Jesus is going to die, and it's going to be expedient. It's going to be advantageous. It's going to be good. He's going to die for the people, but not in the way that Caiaphas thinks. Caiaphas thinks that they're going to kill Jesus to stop a revolution, to stop a new religious movement. But Jesus is going to die to rescue sinners. Jesus is going to suffer injustice here to rescue sinners like us. This idea of rescuing sinners is so personal to John. We talk about Jesus dying for sinners, friends, and if you're like me, you've grown up in the church, you've heard that your whole life, and we can hear that and just kind of almost roll our eyes, yeah, Jesus died to save sinners. And we miss the wonder and how personal and how very real this is. Jesus coming to rescue sinners is not some nebulous concept. Something that should hit in our very lives and hit our daily lives on this. And and John is going to show us the realness of that idea with the story of Peter. Again, if you think of movies while they bring scenes back and forth, I think that's what John's doing here. He's showing us how wondrous it is that Jesus is suffering injustice to save sinners. And he weaves in the story of here's one sinner who's going to get rescued, who desperately needs rescuing. And so he brings in the story of Peter. Jesus is going to suffer injustice to rescue Peter from the very sins Peter's committing. And don't miss this, friends. Jesus is suffering injustice so he can forgive sins. While Jesus is suffering, Peter's committing the sins of denial at this very same point. Jesus is suffering to forgive Peter the sins that Peter's committing while Jesus is suffering. All happening at the same time here. Let's look at what's going on with Peter. Let's pick up with that storyline. Look at verses 15 and 16. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So what's going on here? Two disciples follow Jesus once he's arrested. One of those we know is Peter. One is unnamed for us. Friends, we don't know who that other one is. A lot of people speculate it's John, but that's just speculation. We have no evidence, no way to know who it is. Perhaps it is John. I think it might be, but that is just speculation. We don't know. Whoever this other disciple was knew the high priest so well He could just walk right in. There was no question. Think about that. Here's Jesus on trial, this band, this massive band of soldiers bringing him before Annas. And one of the disciples just marches right in with them. No one questions, no one bats an eye because it was so natural because of that friendship connection that was there with Annas and those apparently in his court there. But that was not the case for Peter. This other disciple goes in. Peter's stuck outside, not admitted into the courtyard. And so this other disciple, whoever it is, goes back to the gate, goes back to the servant and says, Hey, he's with me. Let Peter in. So keep that in view as Peter comes into what happens. A known follower of Jesus is going to let Peter in and get his friend in. So it's pretty obvious who Peter's affiliated with. Is it any wonder then, in light of that, go to verse 17, that the servant at the gate asks this question. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? I mean, she's just admitted someone she knew to be a follower of Christ who had a reason to be there. He then comes and tells, hey, let this guy in who's with me also. So now she asks Peter, are you one of his followers? She's basically saying, oh, no, not another one of them. I already got one of them in my courtyard. Now I've got another one too. What's going on here? But Peter doesn't acknowledge that. After this lady asked him directly, are you basically with this man who I know is a follower of Christ? What does he say in verse 17? Emphatically, I am not. But friends, that's not his only lie. That's not his only denial. Look at verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now jump down to verse 25 as the story picks back up. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples. 
are you? Now, they're asking him a question. He's standing outside in the cold with these other officers. And they ask him, and when you ask a question in Greek, you can ask it with the answer implied. And here they're asking it with a negative answer implied. They're basically saying, you know, we don't think you're one of his followers, but put our mind at ease. Are you? And what does he tell them? He doesn't tell them the truth. He tells them what they want to hear. He falls in the trap of people-pleasing and answering what they want. Verse 25. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. He lies again and denies being a follower of Christ. But friends, that's not all. His lies keep growing. Look at verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now this person is even more confident than the others. Think about this. If you had been... And with the band of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. And you're watching it all happen. And one of your, your family members is with you. And while you're watching, Peter takes a sword and lops off the ear of your family member. You're going to have a pretty good visual of the person who lops off your family member's ear. It's not like, oh, wait, wait, my, friend, my family member's ear got lopped off. I wonder who that was. You're going to know in your mind because you saw it happen. You're there with your family member. You saw him lose the ear. Now he comes in and you're going, hey, um, I got you, buddy. I saw you. You're the one who knocked off my cousin's ear there. You know, I know what you did. I see you there. And Peter is confronted with it, with someone who has evidence that he was there. Well, friends, instead of coming clean and going, you're right, I really am, this is what lies do, doesn't it, when we get tempted to lie? It becomes a web of lies. Peter's lied once, he's lied twice, and now he's so caught in this web of lies, so afraid of what people think, so afraid, perhaps, of even his own safety, that he continues his lies once again, and his web of lies continues here. Look at verse 27. After being clearly caught by someone who saw him lop off the ear of this person's family member, Verse 27, Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Friends, can I remind us this Peter who is now denying Christ is saying, I am not. I am not one of his followers. I am not with them. I do not know these people. The guy who's emphatically saying this three times in a row is the one whose brother first brought him to Jesus, and he heard his creator rename him. You will now be called Peter. This is the same one who had seen miracle after miracle, who had heard the teaching of Christ. This is the same guy who's now saying, I do not know him. It's the one who saw Jesus walking on water and says, call me out to you, and steps out of the boat and walks on water miraculously to Jesus, starts sinking, Jesus grabs him. He's the one who had experienced that. This is the same guy who, when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and was transfigured, took three of his disciples with him. Peter was one of those who got to go see Jesus in his glory up on the mountaintop. He had seen all this. He had experienced all that. He had even pronounced, I will lay down my life for you. Now, three times in a row, he says, I do not know him. I do not know him. I do not know him. Friends, if Peter can fall to that, it shows us how deceptive sin can be and how prone any of us can be to turn against Christ very quickly as well, save for the grace of God. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Jesus loves Peter and is willing to suffer injustice to rescue Peter from his sin. We're going to see even this text that Jesus has forgiveness and redemption and rescue for Peter. Now, where in the world is that in the text? If you're going, I've just read this with you, and I have absolutely no idea where I see Peter getting rescued here. Where is it? Well, it's kind of buried in verse 27. So go back to verse 27. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, if you're new to church and you haven't read this part of John or the other gospel, you may be going, I have absolutely no idea how a rooster crowing has anything to do with Jesus loving Peter and rescuing Peter. So let's get some context for this. Go with me to Matthew chapter 26. Because one of the beauties of, you know, there's four Gospels, four accounts of the life of Christ recorded for us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't, none of them contradict each other, but they tell the life of Christ from four different perspectives. And when you put those together, you see a lot more details. Friends, I think of it this way. If when we're leaving Gateway today, there's a massive wreck out there on Bell Road, and three or four of us are asked by the police to write a report, they're not going to sound identical. 
They're not going to contradict each other, but one of you may notice the human detail and the people crying, and one of you may notice the engineering details of how fast the impact was and how much impact there was. Someone may notice more of the circumstances around it, and all those reports are true. When we put those three together from your different perspectives and different personalities, you get a much fuller picture of what happened. How much more so with the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with very different backgrounds and ways of life who are all followers of Christ write for us what happened in Jesus' life. How much fuller a picture we get as they record for us different details for their audiences of what happened. And we get a few more details here that will help us understand how Jesus was rescuing Peter with that rooster crowing. So Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 here. Let's go back before all this happens. This is when Jesus is still with his disciples in the upper room that Thursday night. Verse 31, look at what, what happens ahead of time. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the, sh- and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Let they all fall away because of you. I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus has already warned Peter what is going to happen. He's already given Peter a sign that will remind him of that he's told him what's going to happen. And can I just pause and remind us how sovereign God is here? How much in control God is? We've already talked about it in John, but all that's happening as Jesus is moving to the cross is not some accident. He's in full command of the situation. So much so, he tells that night before he even goes to be arrested, he tells his disciples, you're going to get scattered tonight. I'm going to be betrayed by you. Peter goes, no, you're not. I'm never going to do that to you. Jesus goes, yeah, tonight, three times it's going to happen. And as soon as it happens, a rooster's going to crow. He's that much in command. He can tell us what's happening. And think about the sovereignty of God in this. Out of the third time that Peter denies Jesus, at that very moment, a rooster crows. What did God do? God made the rooster crow at that point. God is that big. That rooster crowed involuntarily because God was in command of the crowing of the roosters. He's that in control of all that is happening here. Well, John records for us that the rooster crowed. Matthew does as well. But Matthew tells us the effect that the crowing of the rooster had on Peter when all this happened. So go down to verse 74 here of Matthew chapter 26. I want you to see what happens when he hears that. So Matthew chapter 26, verse 74 and 75. Then he, this is Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Verse 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The crowing of the rooster, friends, was an invitation to repent. The crowing of the rooster was in God's sovereign plan, a call to Peter to repent of his sin of denying Christ. And it works. Peter is broken over sin. The end of verse 75, And he went out and he wept bitterly. Jesus breaks Peter's heart over his son. In the midst of Jesus' own unjust sufferings, Jesus is at work bringing a wandering follower of Christ back to repentance. Even as Jesus is suffering and enduring injustice, he is in the middle of sovereignly working to bring one of his followers who's wayward back into the fold, back into a place of fellowship with Christ. He's suffering injustice to rescue Peter from his sin. Because the very next day, Jesus is going to hang on a cruel Roman cross. He's going to hang on that Roman cross. And all the wrath that Peter should receive from God for denying God is not going to go to Peter. It's going to put on Christ. When Christ hangs on the cross, he's going to suffer the wrath of God for Peter's denials so that he can then look at Peter even now ahead of time and call him through a rooster to weep and to repent and to believe. Why? Because Peter's debt 
is going to be paid in full the very next day on the cross. And so Jesus can rescue him and can receive it. And as we'll see throughout later in the Gospel of John and Acts, it's not just God forgives Peter of his denial, but he restores him and works through him and brings him to a place of a God-blessed ministry to impact so many people with the story of Jesus. But friends, this is not just a story about Peter. You know, I want to caution us from just looking at that going, wow, it's really sad that Peter denied, but yay, Jesus, you rescued Peter. That's good. Let me go about my life. This is a story that's about you and me also. Jesus suffered injustice to rescue us, friends, when we, like Peter, also deny God through our sin. It's easy for us to look at a text like this and go, well, I don't know what Peter did. No one's ever asked me, did I believe in Jesus? And be like, no, I hate him. I don't believe in him. If we haven't done that, we can kind of write this off as going, well, I'm glad I haven't done that. But friends, you and I need as much rescuing as Peter did. Anytime we say, think, or act in ways that displease God, we're sinning just as much as Peter did. Friends, what is sin? Sin is basically us saying, God, not what you want, but what I want. Or it's the sin of the thoughts, sin of our affections and hearts, sins of our words, sins of our actions. Sin, basically, friends, is us shaking our fist at God, saying, not your ways, God, but mine. I want things my way, God, not yours, friends. Sin for us is basically denying God's standards. Sin for us is denying God's holiness. Sin for us is denying God's lordship over our lives. Sin for us is shaking our fist in God's face as much as Peter saying, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. Friends, when we think impure thoughts, it's just as much sin as what Peter did. They're saying, God, I know what you say about pure thoughts, but I really don't care right now because I want to think this thing. For us, sin just, is just as bad as what Peter did when we say, God, I know what you say about loving my enemies, but I'm not going to because that person, I'm really mad at them right now. It's just as much what Peter did in denying God. When we say, God, I know you tell me I have to forgive that person, but I'm going to cling to bitterness because I'm so mad at how they wronged me. We are just as much sinning as Peter did because we're denying God's standards. Because even when we disobey the laws of the land that God has set before us and ordained governments for, we're denying God as well because we're saying, not what you want, God, what I want on this. Friends, when you and I choose to sin, and we do, we're denying God's standards, his holiness, we're denying his lordship just as much as Peter is doing here. And friends, so each time we choose to sin, we're really no different than Peter. It's the condition we're all in. It's the condition we're all born into. You've heard me say over and over, but it bears repeating, friends. We sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. We're not called sinners because we sin. We're born sinners, and therefore we sin is all of our condition. Therefore, we all are like Peter. We're all in need of rescuing. Well, if I end right there, that's going to be a gloomy story for a gloomy day, isn't it? But thankfully... That's not the end of the story today. Jesus suffered injustice to rescue us, just like Peter did. He did with Peter. He was rescuing us from our sin as well. Because of what Christ did on the cross the very next day, he could have a rooster crow and bring Peter to repentance because he'd already, he was going to bear the penalty for all of Peter's sin. But friends, in Christ, he's borne the penalty on that cross for your sin and my sin as well. And he calls us to repent. It may not be through a rooster crowing. It could be. But it could be through other things, primarily through his words. We study his word. We see our sin, and we are broken of it as well. Isn't that what the Easter story is all about? The glory of God on display is we see how God in his infinite wisdom and his infinite love found a way to satisfy his wrath that should be rightfully poured out on us without in any way compromising his justice. It's God's glory on display, rescuing sinners like Peter and like you and like me. With that in view, friends, I want us to end this morning with 1 John chapter 1, also written by John. Because it's such a reminder for us what we see at work in this, that Jesus is dying. This whole Easter story is about him rescuing us 
from our sin. And I pray as we go through Easter, we won't go through just the motions of this Easter season, just thinking, wow, it's so cool, Jesus died for us. But friends, that we would catch how personal this is, like John's showing us with Peter, how personal it is that Christ came to rescue Peter from his denials and to rescue us from our sins as well. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So just stop right there. Friends, Scripture is so clear that we've all sinned. There's not one of us sitting in this room who on our own can be holy and right before God. He is so clear. We have all sinned. We are all sinners. But there's hope here. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is the, the application of this text this morning. Christ suffered injustice to make this possible. Christ gladly, willingly laid down his life in control of all things, went to the cross, allowed himself to be unjustly arrested, to allow himself to unjustly be pre-tried here, to unjustly be hit in the face by a soldier. He allowed himself to go through all this to make a way for verse 9 to be possible for us. And because of what he did on the cross the very next day, he can now offer to us this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins. But friends, I think too often as believers we stop there. God, I've sinned against you. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for forgiving me. Amen. And we move about our lives. Notice the and there in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to do what? What's it say? To cleanse us. Isn't this what he does with Peter here? Peter has denied him three times. Peter says, I don't know him. I don't know him. He's lied in the face, people pleasing all around, fear of his own safety, whatever it is, he's lied and lied and lied. And Jesus forgives him, but doesn't just forgive him so he doesn't have to go to hell. He cleanses him. He restores him. And we see through the rest of John and Acts that Peter has an incredibly God-blessed ministry. How could God take someone who would deny him in the face of opposition and rescue him in such a way through a rooster crowing that he can now stand before the multitudes and proclaim, follow Christ, and see multitudes come to faith in Christ? Because he doesn't just forgive us, friends. He cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. Because as you go throughout the Easter season, my prayer for you and my prayer for myself is that we realize and we marvel and be in awe of the fact that Christ died. He suffered all this injustice. He went to the cross, not just so we don't go to hell, but so that we could be forgiven, and not just forgiven, but cleansed to be all that God wants us to be so that we can have a life that would glorify him. Friends, Jesus suffered injustice to rescue you and I because we are just like Peter denying him, and we need rescuing, and he came to do that for us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this account that we've seen in John and just the reminders of, God, your absolute sovereign power. That, God, all this is happening by your design, your good design. Lord Jesus, I pray for myself and these brothers and sisters, God, that we would treasure this Easter season, the wonder of your grace on display on the cross. God, that we would not just go through the Easter season just thinking of the familiarity of, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, and that's it. But, God, would you stir within my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters renewed awe and renewed wonder that you, Lord Jesus, willingly suffered injustice. You allowed a soldier to slap you in the face. You allowed the, the, these soldiers to arrest you in the garden. You allowed yourself to stand before Annas to unjustly bring these things. And we'll see in the weeks to come, all these other injustices done. You endured this suffering to bring us to yourself. Not so we can keep living for ourselves, not just so we don't go to hell, but you endured all this so that you could make us new. You give us a new heart, a new nature, a new desire for you. And God, I pray this Easter season be a season that we would sense you stirring us, drawing us more and more, conforming us more into your own image to be who you have called us to be. 
God, I pray as we go throughout this Easter season in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters, God, that you would bring fresh conviction of sin in our lives. God, that you would show us perhaps even today and the week to come, there is a sin in our life that we've not even noticed. And we ask that not because it's going to be pleasant or fun. We ask it because, God, we need it. God, you love Peter so much. You warned him of what would happen, and you sent a rooster to crow to break him of his sin. God, if any of us in this room are dealing with sin strongholds that we're not dealing with, would you give us that rooster this week? Whatever it is, that reminder of your word and, and what your standard is, and that thing that would bring us to a place of brokenness and conviction and repentance, or because you love us too much to leave us where we are. Or if there's anyone here who feels like that they really can't follow you because they've sinned in too many ways, God, I pray they'll realize that their sin is really no different than Peter. But God, you loved him so much, you rescued him, and you love them so much, you're willing to rescue them as well. Because you'll be drawing their heart to yourself to see what it means to follow you. Lord, for those of us who do know you, God, I pray this week we would treasure that we get to have a relationship with you, our creator. God, not because of anything we've done, but simply because of your grace and your grace alone. Because, Lord Jesus, you suffered injustice. You died on a cross to take our place, that we could be restored to a fullness of life in you. Pray we treasure that this week. Worship you in response and make you known to others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?